before we go to our text for this morning, I want us to think a little bit about the book of 1 John and remind us of why the Apostle John is writing this letter. What has he said that his purpose is? He gives his reasons clearly at the beginning of the book, in verses 3 and 4, the first chapter. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write, so that our joy may be made complete. As he was commissioned by our Lord to do, he proclaims the gospel. Why? For the increase of fellowship between believers and between them and their God, he writes this letter. Why? That that joy may be made complete, both his and theirs. All else that he writes thereafter, then, should be viewed as furthering these ends, fellowship and joy. Considering these things so worthy, so desirable, and their counterfeits, therefore, so detestable, he wants them to be able to ensure themselves that they are really in fellowship with God and wants to ensure that they do not have that falsely. And so he repeatedly exhorts them regarding the necessity of obedience to the commands of God, the duty of love to their Christian brethren, the necessity of purity of doctrine, and the need to guard against worldliness. Failure in these things would hinder their true fellowship and joy. He is writing as a pastor to a flock, and he, like Peter, is feeding and tending them, and with great affection. And amongst these exhortations are various ways in which he describes the position of the Christian to the God and his Christ who has saved him. The Christian has fellowship with God. He knows Christ. He is in Christ. Indeed, the Christian abides in him and abides in the light. His sins have been forgiven. He has overcome the evil one. He knows the Father. He knows the Christ who is from the beginning. The word of God abides in him. He is one to whom the promise is made of eternal life. He is one who has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Again, what the Christian is, the Christian has, is like a jewel with many faces. One phrase for John is not enough. But phrase after phrase falls from pen to parchment to show them the riches bestowed upon us. Is that not enough? He then writes, beginning of chapter 3, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Realize who God is and who you are, and the magnitude of this becomes clear. We are children of God. This should astonish us. And then he puts before them, given the riches of adoption by God, that hope of glory, setting before them that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Then he returns at some length to the necessity to love the Christian brethren, concluding with the text that I preached on in January, starting in verse 16. 
We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And then the text for this morning, starting in verse 19. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him, and whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart, and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. I want us first to notice that this passage begins and ends with phrases containing the word know. We will know and we know. Since John is writing to fellow Christians, these phrases tell us that there are certain things a Christian can and should know, things a Christian will be certain what is it that the Christian should know? He is to know that he is of the truth, and he is to know that God, that Christ, abides in him. These are yet two more phrases added to all those that I mentioned before that speak of the position of the Christian, what state he is in. They are ways of describing the Christian. But note here that it is not just an abstract teaching about some hypothetical Christian, but something personally known about one's own self. Not just, these things are true of a Christian, but these things are true regarding me. It isn't wrong to speak about the Christian in general. John does this elsewhere in his letter. <coughs> in... Um, second chapter, verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Here is the Christian in general, that everyone who practices righteousness, so it is fine to speak and write this way, but my point is this, here John goes further and says they can know something true about themselves, and this isn't the first time John has spoken this way. Three other places I would bring to mind. In 1 John 2, verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, verse, starting in verse 5, By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Or just a few verses before our text this morning, in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. 
because we love the brethren. In all of these texts, we are said to know something about ourselves, our knowing Christ, our being in Him, and we know it in certain ways. So we can know things about the Christian in general, but oh, how much more sweet is it to have a knowledge of our own personal standing before God in Christ? Brothers, what can this do but further the aim of making our joy complete? John is being true to his stated goal here of making joy complete, and he does it in how he says what he says. We call this knowledge, one standing before God, assurance. That's the usual word used, and it's also the word that's suggested by this text for a little while after it talks about the result of that knowledge, assuring our heart before Him. I'll return to that later. But for now, I want us to recognize that in the way John writes, the possibility of assurance for the individual Christian is assumed. If you want a picture of what assurance looks like, let us turn to 2 Timothy, 4th chapter. Those who've read any J.C. Ryle know why I'm going here, because when J.C. Ryle talks about assurance, this is the text that he reminds so wonderfully in his book, Holiness. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul writes this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his These verses are not a teaching about assurance so much. The word isn't used there. Rather, it's a manifestation. It's a showing forth what an assurance looks like. It reveals to us the attitude of the assured soul. This assurance is a sure and a certain knowledge. It's not a hypothetical. It's not abstract. Paul is saying it in regard to himself. It's not something like a weather forecast. It's not a 60% chance of these things happening. It's certainty. His words are altogether certain. There is laid up. Is this not to be seen by you, dear Christians, something altogether desirable? Would you like to be able to say what Paul says? Desirable, yes. But painable? Neil, keep in mind who you're quoting. This is Paul, an apostle. Of course he would have the precious gift of assurance. But you, I, that logic, as humble as it sounds, runs afoul of Scripture. And whenever one does that, One's not really being as humble as you sound. <clears throat> I could quote to you from the second chapter of Colossians, where Paul desires those there to attain all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding. And to whom is he writing? 
those in Colossa and those in Laodicea, all those who have not seen his face. He is not writing to fellow apostles, but to churches planted by someone else. The writer of Hebrews desires that each one of those to whom he's writing would show diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And later, he exhorts them to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Peter instructs about diligence as well, diligence to make one's calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10 Again, to whom are these men writing but churches made up of what we would call lay people? But we are here this morning listening to the Apostle John, so let's hear what he says. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Little children. Fathers, young men, old in faith, young in faith, and to all of these, he gives them words to tell them of their standing before God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is obviously meant for us, for each one of us. So we can know our standing before God. It is important to listen to the particular words the Apostle John uses to express that standing, the position of the Christian before God. John uses two phrases to describe the Christian, two ways a Christian should think of himself. I'll take the second one first. He says at the end of the passage, we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Here we encounter one of the apostle. One of the favorite words of the apostle whom Jesus loved, abide. Abide has the sense of remaining or staying or dwelling. Christ, when he sent his disciples, told them to stay or abide in the house of one worthy until they leave that city. Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. John the Baptist testified that the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism remained or did abide on Christ. John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. The Apostle John uses this word much more often than the other gospel writers, in particular in the sayings of Jesus that he records, such as the passage that Doug read a few minutes ago from chapter 14, in which the Holy Spirit is said to abide with the believer, but also repeatedly in the next chapter in Jesus' teaching about him being the true vine. For example, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The book of 1 John is full of the sap of this teaching. John uses the word something like 19 times in this epistle, not because he has a poor vocabulary, but because John himself is an illustration of what Jesus taught, having been loved 
by Christ. He loves Christ. And the mutual abiding shows itself not only in his explicit teaching, but in the very words that he chooses. He so loved those special words from that last night, words that only he reported, that he loves to repeat them. And he does that for us in this letter. And so he writes, he abides in us. Second, from verse 19, we see that they know they are of the truth. So let's ask Pilate's question, but sincerely. What is truth? Ask me, and my usual response would generally be something along the lines of truth is that that corresponds to what's real, corresponds to reality, corresponds to things as they really are. Then I look at this verse and I think how inadequate, how insufficient that view is. Why? I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but because of the way we know we're of the truth, it's not that we get an A in history, not that we get all our sums right, but why? Because we have a love for the brethren that's like Christ's. In other words, being of the truth means a rectitude of heart and affections, those being rightly ordered. Truth is tied to those things, tied to love. Ask me, and I would have thought that John would have written verse 19 this way, by this way we will know that we are of love. But no, it's of truth. These surprising turns of phrase in the Bible are like the place in the fifth chapter of Revelation given to this same apostle. He's told to behold the lion of the tribe of Judah who has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And John looks and there is a lamb. Not what you were expecting, was it? Here in John's letter, we're told to love without hypocrisy, not only in word and in deed, but in deed, and then told by this that we will know that we are of the truth, not that we are of love. We are right to fight to remove the quotation marks from around the word truth that people love to put nowadays. We are right to fight for truth with a capital T, the truth. But do we fight for truth that is inextricably bound up with love? If you're like me, your conception of truth doesn't go that far, and so it doesn't go far enough. If you're like me, if you love as something warm, a yielding and a comfortable thing, and truth as something hard, of crystalline perfection with sharp edges, not incompatible, and both good beyond repair, beyond compare, but two very different things. But then you see the Lion of Judah, a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And your conceptions are smashed. Here in this verse, you see love as the touchstone as to whether you are of the truth. It's not that truth is less than what corresponds with what is real, but according to God's word, it's certainly more than that. I'll return to the practical application of that in just a few minutes. So keep it in mind. Now, one of the usual objections to assurance is that it's dangerous in that it encourages people to presume upon God's grace. Presumption upon God's favor upon them, laxity in life, or the supposed foul fruits of assurance. John is not naive. 
that a person can wrongly think he has fellowship of God is obvious to John. Think of what he has written. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 1, verse 6. Chapter 2, verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Chapter 2, verse 9. People can and will say almost anything. John knows that. But that doesn't keep John from writing that we can nonetheless have real and true assurance. We see that from the words we know. But John does not want us to have false assurance. He obviously detests that and is in fact battling against that very thing throughout this epistle. So to guard against that, he wants to give us good grounds for having assurance. He gives us ways in which we can know that we are in Christ. And that all the ways in which he describes the Christian, all of those phrases that I've mentioned, are therefore true of us. And that joy is indeed set before us. He gives us two of these very closely related. So these are the grounds of assurance. First of these that he mentions. First of these, as I've mentioned before, is love for your Christian brothers. In verse 19, we will know by this that we are of the truth. What does the word this refer to? From the way the sentence turns out, it can't be what comes after. So it has to be what comes before. What comes before? The verses that exhort us to love our brethren without hypocrisy, to lay aside our goods, even our lives, for the sake of our brethren, because that is what Christ has done for us. This is one way to know if you are of the truth. Do you love your brother in Christ? If you hate him, regardless of your protestations to the opposite, the verdict of Holy Scripture is that you are in darkness until now. And that you do not and that you who do not love abide in death. The necessity for mutual love between believers is one of John's great recurring themes in this letter. And it really goes all the way back to his stated desire for fellowship with those to whom he's writing. The attitude of the Christian towards his brothers in Christ is set forth beautifully in Psalm 16, verse 3. As for the saints that are on the earth, that that are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. And if the word all bothers you, remember the unity that Christ has with his church. Give drink, give food, give clothing to the least of these, and you've done it for Christ. Deny those things, and you've denied it to Christ. Persecute the church as Paul did, and you're persecuting Christ. You're kicking against the goads. Have you encountered people who say they love Christ, but just can't stand any of his followers? They're giving evidence that they don't love Christ. Because Christ is united with his church. 
The letter we call 3 John gives us a perfect contrast for this point. Gaius on the one hand, Diotrephes on the other. Over in 3 John, he's addressing Gaius, starting in verse 5. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what I say, what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Apply John's test. And it is clear which one has false assurance. No doubt Diotrephes would say quite a bit, but the verdict of John's own words is that he is in darkness until now, abiding in death. No wonder he did not accept what John said and what he wrote to that church. If it read anything like 1 John, I don't think he would have been able to bear it. I pray that there are no ears here this morning that are stopped up against what John says here. For here is what John continues to say. And third, John, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Now, this love is more than mere is is not mere affection. It's not less than affection, but it's more than affection. For Gaius, it apparently involves quite a bit of hospitality, which is costly and can be dangerous. This example shows us the laying down of the world's goods commanded us and illustrates how far beyond mere liking this love is. It is entirely possible for non-Christians to like to be around Christians. Many years back, we had a fellow who attended our church services here for a while before moving away, and once he bluntly said that he was not a Christian but that he always sought out churches because of the kindness of the people there. Now, that's a testimony of sorts, but it's admittedly not a testimony to the fact that the man was a Christian, because he wasn't. He said so. Would he have died for any of us? And if he would dare that, would it be because Christ laid down his life for him? No. Thus, the love of the brethren that is the test here is not a mere sentimental attraction, but something that will result in definite actions under certain conditions and for a definite motive, the glory of God, the hallowedness of his name. I mentioned that last because Paul testifies that the flesh can even parody the sacrifice of self and goods that John is called for. In 1 Corinthians 13.3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor... And if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. If John is a mystic, and some people regard him as such, here's his mystical test for being a Christian. Do you love your brother? 
Will you die for him out of that love? And here comes, I think, a real practical application of seeing truth as bound up in love and love and truth, as I mentioned before. Do you think yourself a Christian because of the views you hold, your philosophy, your view of the world, your politics, even your theology? That is all well and good. And it's not that those things are unimportant. They are important. But keep in mind that love never fails, while if there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Ask yourself those simple questions. How do you think of your fellow Christian? Would you die for him out of love? Or are you a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal, having not love? I think that these are times in which it is very easy to have spite for our Christian brothers. The church is admittedly in its present state weak. Her confession is faltering and often like milk and water. That's an obvious joy to Satan and has obvious benefits to the cause of evil. But what is he to do with those, for example, who know much better what a Christian is to believe, those who know their doctrine? Simple. Get them to despise their brothers. Fill them with spite. What would be better from the devil's viewpoint than to have those whose doctrine more fully conforms to Scripture yet deny its spirit by not in, in lowliness of mind esteeming others better than himself? So does the word fool fall from our lips too easily? Does the word majestic from Psalm 16 verse 3 come to mind? If so, we know what Jesus says if the word fool comes quickly. Expect a call to appear before the Sanhedrin. That's one grounds, loving your brother. Second grounds for assurance that he gives is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the verses at the end, uh, verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We can be assured of his abiding by this. And here we can see from the construction of the verse that this is the spirit that he has given us. All the English translations I've looked at share an ambiguity with regard to this verse. Namely, is the Holy Spirit the means or the grounds of our assurance? Is he the one giving assurance or is his presence itself the grounds for the assurance? Both are true, but what is John saying here? People are divided, but I'm going to go with Martin Lloyd-Jones on this and others and say that the presence of the Holy Spirit is a grounds for assurance. His being sent to the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost constituted one more proof of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. He said that it would happen. It did. He said he would ask the Father. He did, and the request was granted. But it is proof not only of his divine sonship, but a testimony that the church is loved by the Son. Pentecost shows us that we have divine help that Christ did not leave us as orphans, that we have a divine teacher and one who calls to remembrance all that Christ said and all those things are proof of the love that God has bestowed upon his church. Now, as for the day, as for the church at Pentecost, so for the individual believer, even now, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a grounds for assurance. That is fine, but how can I know if the Holy Spirit is indwelling? 
There was no sound of rushing wind, no tongues of fire appeared, no miraculous reversal of Babel when I became a Christian. No, but let us bear in mind all the Holy Spirit does and is shown to have already done when a person becomes a Christian. Did you repent of your sins? Cast yourself as an unworthy sinner upon Christ as your only insufficient hope. Is your only comfort in life and death that you are not your own, but Christ, your faithful Savior's body and soul? Or look at verse 23 of our passage from today. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Would you do any of that apart from God's work in you? Apart from the Holy Spirit granting that to you, would it happen? And so we see that it is all of grace. This passage makes that clear to us. This grounds for assurance makes it clear to us. You want assurance? Do you love your brother? Do you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God saves through Christ and saves even you? Do you believe that he was the anointed one of the father, anointed as prophet, priest, and king, your prophet, your merciful high priest, and the king over your life, that he was God with us, deity incarnate? See then that the Holy Spirit has been granted to you. There is no other explanation for it. Nothing else will accomplish that. And if the Holy Spirit is given to you, know that he abides in you and attain the full riches of assurance. Do you see how far from works righteousness this is? Verse 24 makes it plain. The Holy Spirit makes it plain. When I look to my love of the brethren as assurance of my salvation, I must be so far from justifying myself by my works, so far from thinking that these good works earn me these good things. How? By realizing that in me dwells no good thing. It must be God. It must be the Holy Spirit. Good works are to strengthen my assurance of salvation. That is one of the purposes of them. Good works are not how I am saved, but evidences that I am, that the power of God has done a work in me. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Occasions to love the brethren when placed before us, are of God's ordaining, his preparation. When we walk in them, we give him all glory, for he has done this thing, prepared the occasion beforehand, created us in Christ Jesus through the new birth, so that we would desire and be enabled to walk in them. No occasion for boasting here. All to the glory of God, all of grace. Now, I must move to the fruit of this assurance. Third point before nightfall comes. Assurance, <laughs> assurance is of real benefit to the believer. And before seeing those benefits, we need to admit something that we see, something of scripture, that it never tires of showing us the good to be gained by walking in the right path. I've already quoted from Psalm 16 this morning with regard to our attitudes towards our brothers in Christ. At the end of Psalm 16, we are promised pleasures at his right hand forevermore. Scripture never tires of appealing to us in this way, appealing to our desires, appealing for them to be rightly ordered and thus ultimately satisfied. The resulting constant thread of joy, even at the plundering of one's goods, even at the losing of life, runs throughout Scripture. 
It's not just the way the Bible happens to phrase things. It's the way God works and shows that he works. Patricia has been given a book uh, by John Piper that she is reading. It's an excerpt from a larger book. It's on battling unbelief, and the subtitle speaks volumes. Defeating sin through superior pleasure. Defeating sin through superior pleasure. I haven't read the book yet, but that subtitle grabs me. I'm convinced that it accords with Scripture, and it reminds me of Psalm 16. So given that general way in which Scripture speaks to us, we should not be surprised to find Scripture tells us real benefits that come from assurance. Benefits that will spill over to others, to be sure, but which are of great blessing to the one possessing that assurance. Our confession states these benefits as a heart enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in the duties of obedience. These are largely found at the beginning of the fifth chapter of the book of Romans, first five verses. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also... Sorry, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. But we are reading First John this morning. First, remember John's aim, that joy would be made complete, And see how well assurance dovetails with that. But in these verses, John focuses on one particular fruit with regard to one's heart, in particular, boldness and prayer in these verses, verses 19 through 22. We We will know that by this, that we are of the truth and will assure our hearts before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Before him shows that we are speaking about prayer here. as just what follows about asking and receiving. Before him can refer to the day of judgment, as John as John says elsewhere, such as the end of the second chapter, where he speaks of the fruit of confidence in his coming, not shrieking away from him in shame. But here, it's prayer that's in view. We may have boldness in prayer because of our assurance. So here's the scenario, and I'm sure this has happened to some of us. You go to the Lord in prayer, but you know that you're not perfect. You know that you continue to fail, and though not continuing habitually and willfully in sin, you know that there are those things in which your heart is condemning you. How do you go to prayer in that situation? Or for that matter, is there any other, is there any different situation that we've ever gone to prayer in? Hasn't that always been the case? And then, God's knowing the number of hairs on my head comes before me. And if he knows that, how much better does he know my sin than I do? 
If I knew there's something in which my heart condemns me, if I knew the true measure of it, if I knew it as God knows it, how much more would it condemn me? How do I continue to pray in this situation? But God is greater than our heart. Knowing all things means that he, too, knows things that our knowledge of sin would prevent us from remembering. Things the accuser would definitely like us to forget. Which the Holy Spirit, speaking through John, reminds us of here. Let me tell you, I have been dreading preaching on this passage. Because I so fear misleading you. I would come to an interpretation and ask myself, is that really what it's saying? Dare I place, for example, my love of the brethren against my obvious sins? I know that I have prayed that way, but... But was it right? Is that what John's saying? I don't want to mislead you, my brothers, on this. So I found great comfort when I found that in a far better man than myself. So rather than reward it and read to you a brief passage from Martin Lloyd-Jones on this passage. We have to talk to ourselves. We must reassure these hearts of ours. We must persuade them that we have this access and that all is well. So how do we do it? You do it like this, says John. Your heart is there reminding you of all those, all these things, condemning you. You say to your heart, it is all right. I admit that it is absolutely true of me, and I bemoan and regret it. Yes, I, but I do find that I love the brethren. I find myself drawn out to them. I love their society and their company. I cannot look and see my brother or sister suffer without helping them. I find myself loving them thus in practice, and because I do that, I must be a child of God. I would not do it otherwise. The fact that I am thus loving the brethren is a proof that I have passed from death unto life. It means that I no longer belong to the world. It means that I am a child of God. By nature, I would not love such people. I would not be interested in them. I would not be concerned to help them. But I would find, but I find the desire in me to do so, and I am doing it. And that what you say against me is true. I say that this is proof that I am a child of God. So I can reassure my heart, and that is why I do it. Have you not known yourself having to do this kind of thing? Have you not known this argument within yourself there in the presence of God? And have you not had to find confidence in terms of scripture and to prove to yourself that you are a child of God and therefore can pray to him? That being before us, the gates are open wide. Confidence before God, a confidence that asks and receives. Why? Because our hearts are rightly ordered before God. We are praying as he taught us. We are keeping through his power. We are keeping through his power, his commandments, and doing the things that are pleasing in his sight. Doing that, our requests will be rightly ordered and granted. And if our requests are denied, as was Christ's for the cup to pass, and Paul's for the thorn to be removed, we have already prayed, if it be thy will. And we're at peace with his will being other than our request. Thy will, not mine, be done. If the prayers of a righteous man avail much, how much is to be gained by the confidence in prayer which assurance gives? And how much is to be lost if we don't have that assurance? 
Or to move the argument back even further, how much is to be lost because we haven't loved the brethren? I could say much here, but time prevents it. I'm just going to mention one thing. Regarding our family life, and I mention it because it hit me square in the jaw some time ago. If you're married, how is it in your home? Husbands in particular, how is it? Hear Peter's instruction to husbands. Your husband, you husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Do you want a recipe for hindered prayers? Live with your wife in a misunderstanding way. Dishonor her and your prayers will be hindered. If you say, my prayers have not been hindered, I will point out that the text does not say that you will perceive your prayers as hindered, but that they will be hindered, regardless of what you think or feel. I mention that text as an example. Those of you who are unmarried, those of you who are wives, those who are children, similar things apply. And we know that they do because of what John has said. By this, we know that we have the truth and will assure our heart. Love for, the, love for our brethren, if absent, will hinder our prayers. Be sure of it. Whether we are dealing with our wives, our husbands, our children, our parents, siblings who have the toys we want to play with, fellow churchgoers who annoy us, whatever, know that how we relate to those for whom Christ died will either give us great confidence before God, through which much can be done, or will hinder our prayers. Assurance for the believer is taught in the scriptures. Though many will give arguments and complaints against it, one little word shall fell it. We know. It is a real assurance Not a presumption which leads to a loose life, but a real assurance with solid grounds of the inward graces, the spirit to which promises are made. It is of grace, holy of grace, attesting to and rejoicing in grace and keeping the heart both humble and holy. And it will be of great benefit to us in a host of ways, but in prayer, certainly, through which God accomplishes much. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, your blessing upon the ministry of your word, we ask. Again, we thank you for it, for granting it to us, for preserving it. We ask, Heavenly Father, that it will do the work that you desire in us. Humble us. Keep us holy, Lord. Order our lives, Heavenly Father, according to your holy scriptures. Let us know, Heavenly Father, who it is that we are, and what a great salvation we have been granted, and how that salvation has been purchased, not with perishable things, but by the precious blood of Christ Jesus, our great and merciful High Priest, our lives be a testimony to his work. May we love one another 
May we follow your commandments, Lord. Only through your grace, only through the working of the Holy Spirit in us can we do that. Therefore, to you belongs all praise and all thanksgiving. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.